Our text for meditation this third Sunday after Epiphany is on our Old Testament reading, 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 1 through 15. Hear the word of our Lord. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor, because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians, on one of their raids, had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, Would that my lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his lord. Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, Wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and all his company, and he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. But he said, As the Lord lives, before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Then Naaman said, If not, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any god but the Lord. In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Ramon to worship there, leaning on my arm, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon, when I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. He said to him, Go in peace. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, grace, mercy, and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. 
There is nothing that irritates me more in religious debates than base appeals to quote-unquote truth. Don't get me wrong, I absolutely hold that the Christian faith is true in every sense of the word. There is literally only one religion that is completely true, and that is Christianity, full stop. But there comes a point when worldviews and religions clash in debates, and one individual asks why he should believe the other man's faith. And without fail, the response is universally, because it is true. Such a response sounds great in terms of demonstrating fealty to one's beliefs. And certainly it is valid when coming from the Christian in a debate with a non-Christian. But it still falls flat. We believers have become extremely naive that we still think non-believers value the truth. For 2,000 years now, Christian theologians and apologists have been hard at work discovering, categorizing, and arguing for the truth of the scriptures and the facts of the gospel. But we forget that for thousands of years now, the other religions out there have built massive edifices of apologetics surrounding their falsehoods to compete with this and pretend they are correct. When you appeal to the truth qua the truth, you only invite the other guy to pull out his endless references to the thinkers in his religion. Chances are, the discussion goes nowhere. Now to clarify further, appealing to the truth is not the same as appealing to the facts. Facts mean something when you bring them up. Telling someone that Jesus rose from the dead and then presenting the evidence that he rose from the dead is showing the facts of the matter. This leads directly to the implications that the facts lead to. That Jesus is divine, he is correct in everything he says, and that we should trust in him for our salvation. When you skip all that by telling someone they should be a Christian, quote, because it's true, you have not led that person at all to becoming a Christian. You have just made a demand that they find senseless, and it is likely that the response will just be, well, I disagree. Truth without meaning, truth without consequence even, is completely worthless to most people. A religion that is true, but does not save, or even have some other benefit to you, is useless. If our Lord Jesus did not rise from the dead for a purpose, if he had merely risen from the dead to show off or something, would you still feel the call to worship him? If he did not care to die for you, but merely died as if for no reason, would you still love him? Of course not. So an evangelist telling someone that this is all about the truth and nothing else misses the opportunity to proclaim the gospel which is more than just truth. The gospel is truth that is for you. It is truth that saves you. It is truth that does something for you. If someone should ask, why should I believe in your Christ? The best answer is, because he died for you to save you and to bring you eternal life. He was not merely satisfied with feeding you and providing your shelter, your clothing, and all other good things in your life. 
He truly died and rose again that you may be with him eternally, because he loves you. The gospel without apologetics is preaching. Apologetics without the gospel is just data mining or philosophical discussion. When both are together, we are looking at dynamic, powerful evangelism. This is exactly how Naaman was converted. This little slave girl, captured as a result of the Syrian army's raid against Israel, serves as a fantastic evangelist and apologist for the faith. She says, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. What does that say to the commander? Her pronouncement says that there is a God who is stronger than Naaman's God, because her God can heal him and his pagan deities cannot. She makes this truth claim and attaches it with the expert, the prophet Elisha. Can you imagine Naaman looking down at his scabby, rotting hands? Perhaps he has lost a finger by this time and he's worried about losing his nose. This has been a debilitating problem for him for a long time, such that he is known for it. He is a leper, and despite his involvement with the pagan cult of Ramon, his leprosy remains. Now imagine if this poor slave girl had been a cantankerous apologist, one who ignores the plight of the other, and she just says, Naaman, master, you are a slave to lies. My God is true and yours is false. Would that have done anything to save this man's soul? Would this have had nearly the power that the text shows? Hearing that the God of all Israel has the power to heal motivates this man, Naaman, to humility. It is such humility that he would send to the king of Israel for help, the king of a country that Naaman was guilty of raiding. Goodness, what boldness he shows, both boldness and humility, in going to a country you just attacked and asking for assistance. Naaman must not only be convinced that this God is able to heal him, he must also presume that this God is forgiving and gracious, that someone as guilty as himself may still find healing. And if a prophet is the man through whom this healing would be accomplished, then certainly the God that the prophet worships has directed his people to show and teach this kind of grace to everyone. When you and I encounter a non-believer and end up in a discussion with them, it is likely that they have pains which eat at them. These pains may be open, as with poverty or disease, but they may also be private, the hidden hurt of the heart. Certainly there is injury and sorrow that come with slavery to the world, the flesh, and the devil. When we witness... We are not witnessing to some great intellectual, no matter how much he or she may present as such. We are witnessing to someone wounded, wounded enough to dialogue with us in the hope that maybe, just maybe, the mental and psychological barriers put up by the enemies of Christ may be brought down. And just like Naaman, if we present the truth with love, they might see that our God is not only real, but also that he is the only one who can really help them. Now King Jehoram, sitting upon his throne, 
is suspicious of Naaman. Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. King Jehoram, though he was a half-hearted believer at best, knew that the non-believer is suspicious. The non-believer is wicked. There is no reason to trust the non-believer. We would be wrong to judge King Jehoram's suspicion, even though he was by and large a wicked man himself. After all, not only was Naaman a pagan up until this point, he was the commander of the Syrian army. They had been at war in recent memory. Before we judge the king of Israel, we must admit he has a point. We ought to understand that we can actually sympathize here a bit. We all feel that way every now and then. Do not expect intellectual honesty from a non-Christian. Do not expect good behavior. The non-Christian you talk to is a member of the devilish world system that has persecuted the church since Abel died at the hands of Cain. The enemies of Christ indeed answer the call of the Pied Piper and drown themselves in the blood of the martyrs all the time. We might also be guilty of chastising King Jehoram for his unbelief. What, does he not know that the true God can heal? Why does he tear his robes? Beloved, let us not miss what the king of Syria wrote on Naaman's behalf. When this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. It is not that King Jehoram was doubtful here, although in the record of scripture there are other moments which show his doubts and struggle with faith. It is more that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, was ignorant. King Jehoram is incredulous because the expectation given was that the king of Israel himself would heal Naaman, not any prophet. Non-believers get it wrong all the time, even when the witness is so simple that a slave girl can articulate it. She says the prophet would do it. Ben-Hadad tells King Jehoram to do it. This is because non-Christians like Ben-Hadad literally cannot understand these things without God's intervention. As the apostle witnesses in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So King Jehoram ought not be judged for his suspicion, and we certainly should not cast aspersions at his dismay. But it should be said that King Jehoram looks at the situation much the same as the Christian does today when interacting with a non-believer. The church looks at the missionary, the apologist, and the street preacher with a kind of curiosity, if not disdain. Oh, we are happy to give the good vibes and thank yous to the evangelist. We are perfectly satisfied with feigning adoration, giving him pats on the back for his missionary work. But in the back of our minds, we are grateful that we are not in his shoes. Put a non-believer in front of us for a religious discussion, and suddenly the temptation is there to lose all nerve and back out of the conversation. 
going to a place where most people will hate you to convert maybe a few people and then work overtime in bad conditions to help these scarce souls in the hopes that God is glorified? Good for you and good luck, pal. You're going to need it. We all know we would be hard-pressed if the opportunity to evangelize just showed up on our doorstep. Jehoram expresses this attitude we have out loud, tearing his clothes at the exact same opportunity. Something we need to realize, though, is that God works through means. Who inspired the slave girl to speak to her Syrian mistress about the prophet? None other than the Holy Spirit. In John 3, verse 8, our Lord Jesus says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. If faith comes by hearing, and the Holy Spirit utilizes human beings, then it is evident that he is the one sending people to bring about that faith which comes by hearing. Romans 10, 17. God sent that little slave girl to speak to Naaman's wife. He also sent Elisha to heal Naaman. Elisha speaks to the king. Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. Now, Elisha does not say this in order to make something of himself or to proclaim any sort of special status on himself. Though it might be tempting to think this is the case, given that Elisha sends a messenger to Naaman instead of coming outside of his house and greeting him or giving him instructions man to man. Truth of the matter is, Naaman has leprosy at this point, and leprosy is contagious. In addition to this, prophets were busy. Prophets had a lot of work to do in this day, so it is not as though he was going to pull all the stops for poor Naaman. But he does give him an effective witness. Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean. That's it. Here's what you must do to be healed. To be saved, you might say. Go and wash. Go and wash. That sounds very familiar to us, doesn't it? It brings up a baptism to our minds. That we understand in the waters of holy baptism, God confers unto us salvation, making us clean, where formerly we were struck by the disease and leprosy of sin. Now, that is a little bit of typological speculation here. At the end of the day, Elisha gives a message that confirms what the slave girl says. Yes, indeed, there is a prophet that can heal you. Here is what you will do to receive that healing. Not that Naaman is earning it by going to the Jordan and dipping himself seven times in it, but that is how Naaman will receive it. Now, Naaman does not like this one bit. Typically, people who are drawn to faith will find things confusing, perhaps disappointing. Naaman is led to believe in this God, but he's expecting a wow factor. He's expecting some sort of perfection, as so many new believers do when they expect everything to be perfect in their life now that they are Christians. 
But thankfully, the servants serve as the voice of reason here. It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? He says, listen, there is a real salvation here, a real deliverance that this prophet is offering you from the hand of his God. Why not take it? It's so simple. So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, and the scripture teaches us that his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. It is at this point that Naaman fully becomes a believer at the waters, at the cleansing, just like our baptisms, where you may have faith in Christ, but you don't have that saving faith quite yet. Not until our baptisms. Humanity, under the first commandment, is told, have faith in God. You are commanded to have faith, and we can make a good effort at it, but we cannot force the issue. We cannot make our faith perfect. It is God who covers up those gaps for us. It is the Holy Spirit who gives us real faith when he dips us in the waters of baptism. And once Naaman goes to the waters, once he is truly cleansed and refreshed, the same way in our baptism we are cleansed of sin and refreshed and made whole as believers, what does he say? Behold, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel, so accept now a present from your servant. And thank the Lord that the prophet Elisha spurns this opportunity for simony, selling grace. He does not accept payment for it. Faith has been brought about by the Holy Spirit working through means, working through people, working first through the slave girl, and then indeed through King Jehoram in his own way, and then through the prophet but it is at the waters that Naaman is fully cleansed and his faith is made complete when he sees that, yes, this God is true. He is the absolute truth. He already believed this enough to go to Samaria to find the prophet, to find whoever could make him clean. But it is the truth that benefits. It is the truth that saves, which fully grants him this salvific faith such that he, in his own primitive way, says, I'm only going to worship this God from now on. Can I have some buckets of dirt? <laughs> he doesn't understand the faith entirely yet, but the prophet nonetheless tells him, go in peace. God's work of salvific conversion has taken place, and we rejoice to see it. So moving forward, may we take that same attitude, being powerful witnesses to the truth which saves the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ to those who are lost in the world. But may we also patiently wait for the Holy Spirit to bring about that witness from us. Not going on our own accord, not presuming ourselves to be great men. May we have the same humility that the prophet Elisha has such that we may speak only when the Lord inspires us to do so, and to not be worried about those opportunities when they come by. Now the peace of our Lord, which surpasses all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds 
in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.